0: This week we're going to look at verses 22 through 41. So if you can turn there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thus ends our reading of God's double-edged sword, that is his piercing word. May all who hear it be cut to the heart. Back in the 18th century, the, the, the Prussian king Frederick the Great once made a visit into a prison in Berlin. And as he was walking through this prison, it seemed that as if every prisoner had had fallen on their knees before him, begging him, claiming their, their own innocence and pleading for release. And yet near the end of his visit, he noticed one prisoner who had remained silent. Frederick had the prisoner come to him and he he asked the man, why are you here? The prisoner answered, armed robbery, your majesty. And are you guilty, Frederick asked. Yes, indeed, your majesty. I deserve my punishment. Frederick then summoned the jailer and ordered him, Release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in this prison where he will corrupt all the fine, innocent people who occupy it. You see, you see it was out of the mercy of this king that this captive man found forgiveness. For, for, for he knew he was guilty and that he deserved to rot inside that prison. In other words, he was cut to the heart. And King Frederick saw this. He he saw that this man was repentant. And, and that was the why that was the reason why he, he showed him the favor that he did. For 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 this king knew that, that only a truly repentant man would be able to change his ways and once again become a productive citizen within his kingdom. We are now in our fourth week in the, this book of Acts, and, and if you, you recall from last week, it was on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Christ, Christ's disciples. And this all began when, when the sound of a mighty rushing wind came upon them, and, and then what looked like flaming tongues appeared and rested upon their heads. And then just as Jesus had promised, they had become empowered with the Holy Spirit. Empowered to become witnesses for their Savior. That is when they began to speak in these different tongues, these different languages from around the world. And because it was the day of Pentecost, because Jerusalem was filled with visitors, there were devout Jews as well as Gentile converts from many, many nations that were there that day. And we saw that while while some simply scoffed at what was going on, there were others who wanted to know what this was about. What did this mean? How are these Galileans speaking my language? Why are they speaking about the mighty works of God in my tongue? And if you remember, it was Peter who then stood up and proclaimed that this was a fulfillment to what the prophet Joel had prophesied, that in these last days, God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh and that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Which leads us to today, where we see Peter demonstrating to this crowd exactly whose name they should be calling upon. Who is this one who can bring to them this salvation? Look at verses 22 and 23. Listen to Peter's words. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Ouch. I don't know about you, but this doesn't seem like the best way of trying to convince people. I mean, what what Peter just did was accuse this crowd of being murderers. How can you win people to Jesus if you are offending them in such a manner? I think one of the biggest issues when it comes to our modern and and postmodern approaches to evangelism is this notion that we should never offend anyone. That we should always be winsome in our speech. And yet, in what is the the first evangelistic sermon of the church, the, the Apostle Peter seems to insult everyone within an earsh- earshot. I mean, think about what he said. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That's not going to win you many friends. Now, we'll get to the reason why Peter's doing this in a moment, but before we do do that, let's let's first see how Peter got there. To start off, let's, let's answer the question, who was Peter talking about? Who was this person that Peter was trying to magnify? Upon whose name were the people to call in order to be saved? Jesus of Nazareth. Peter was being very specific here, letting the people know that this outpouring of God's spirit was linked to Jesus. And he calls him Jesus of Nazareth, so that they would be certain of whom he was speaking. One of the key characteristics about the Christian faith is that it is grounded in actual history in actual historical figures. Think of some of the other major world religions, religions such as Buddhism or Islam. I mean I mean if you could prove that either the Buddha or Muhammad never existed, would either of those two religions take a hit? Not really. For, for, for the existence of those religions do not hinge on historical events. Getting rid of Buddha or getting rid of Muhammad wouldn't prove that those religions are false. And, and the reason it wouldn't prove it is, is because these religions are more about their, their teachings than they are their teachers. And yet with Christianity, if you could prove that Jesus never existed, well, then the entire faith crumbles. Because everything that we believe is grounded in the fact that this man actually lived. Our faith is is based on historical evidence of this Jesus of Nazareth. Both in who he is and and what he did. You see, Jesus isn't some type of symbol. He he isn't some abstract theological idea. Rather, he is a real man who has real flesh and blood. He he is a man who was born in Bethlehem, who grew up in Galilee. And this is why Peter begins where he does, speaking of this Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is a real person whom many of them had borne witness to. In other words, there was no denying that Jesus performed miracles among them that he healed the sick, that he cast out demons. These things were not done in secret. In fact, nobody even questioned these things, not even his enemies. What was questioned was the source of this man's authority. The the, the Pharisees claimed that it was through demonic influence that Jesus could do such things. And yet Jesus proved their arguments to be false and filled with logical fallacies. See an example of this. Look at, look at Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 20. Speaking of Jesus, it says this. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others to test him kept seeking for him from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, even the Pharisees couldn't deny that Jesus was performing miraculous feats, And that is the point that, that Peter is now making. Everybody knew that this Jesus was accredited by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs. Do you know? Do you understand that Jesus is real? That 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 he is a real person, a man who lived among us, and that he has the power to heal the sick, to cast out demons, that he was accredited by God through his miraculous works? Do you believe this? And yet, as great as Jesus is, his fate seemed to be tragic. For for he was crucified by the very people who should have been embracing him. And what does Peter say about this? That this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Peter now continues his witness about Jesus by making it clear that it was God's plan to have his son crucified. Peter is acknowledging the sovereignty of God when it came to the death of Jesus. Not not only did God foreknow that it would happen, but he is the very one who planned it. The cross was his will. Now, does this make God evil? Of course not. For God's intentions behind the crucifixion of his son was for the justification of sinful men. It was for man's salvation. You see, in order for man to be made right in God's sight, there needed to be a true atonement for sin. And so this sacrifice of his son, It was really the only way that the sins of God's people could truly be forgiven. And so yes, it was God's idea to have Jesus go to the cross to suffer for our sake. Here's what you need to understand when it comes to God's sovereignty. There is nothing, absolutely nothing in this universe that happens without God's sake. In fact, he is the one who who orchestrates everything, everything for the purposes of his will. And the death of Jesus was in the mind of the Almighty Father before it was even in the hearts of evil men. And yet, while this was God's plan, this this event of Jesus' death, this, this was also the result of the wickedness of men. The reason Jesus was killed was because the Jewish people desired it. And this is a crucial piece to Peter's message. And what does he say? And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. In other words, these men were guilty of murdering Jesus. Look at, look at Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 24. Here we get the account of Pilate and the crowds. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the, and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of, the, of your charges against him. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, whom they asked, whom, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Bottom line is this. From an earthly standpoint, the driving force behind Jesus' death was the will of the Jewish people. It may have been the Roman soldiers, those men who are outside the law, who physically pounded in those nails. But it was the children of Jacob who demanded that it be done, and it was all because they refused to accept this Jesus as their Messiah. And this, this, my friends, is what Peter wanted the crowds to consider their own guilt when it came to the murder of this Jesus of Nazareth. He he wanted the weight of their sin to come bearing down upon themselves. And not because he was seeking some type of revenge for what they had done to his master. No. But, But because he wanted them to come to terms with the truth. The truth about who they are and their dire situation that they found themselves in. And this is something that we should consider as well. Listen, when when you truly think about it, are we not all guilty when it comes to the death of Jesus? Even though it was God's will, God's will that his son was crucified, why was it God's will? Because there needed to be an atonement for sin. Because there needed to be a sacrifice that could truly wash us clean. And so with every sinful act, with every willful disobedience, we, we have pounded in those nails even further. Let me ask you, do you understand that you are just as much to blame for the death of Jesus as those Jews who were crying, crucify, crucify. That, that, that with every sin you commit, it, it is a sin that needs to be paid for. Do, do you recognize that when it comes to the murder of Jesus, you are guilty? And so am I. But fortunately for us, that is not where Peter ends his sermon. It is not in death that this message of Jesus of Nazareth will finish. Look at verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Could there be any better words than these? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Amen. Amen. Here we see that it was by the power of God that Jesus was raised from the dead. And this is vital because death cannot be overcome by mere human strength. It cannot be defeated through human effort. And as much as we try to find immortality, all of our labors are in vain, for it cannot be accomplished. I mean, we we kind of talked about this this morning in our Sunday school. Think about all the things that we do, all our efforts to fend off death. We build hospitals. We do scientific research. We try to find cures for diseases. We take extreme sanitary precautions when we feel like it's necessary and sometimes when it's not even necessary. And I'm not saying that these aren't good things to be doing. They are. But, but no matter how advanced we get, And no matter how many remedies, how many cures to diseases we discover, we can only fend off death for so long. In the end, death will have his say. And that is because death can only be defeated by one who is greater than he. Only God can raise the dead. Here's what you need to understand. Death has an iron grip. And nobody can escape it. Unless, unless there is someone who is greater. Someone who will come along and rescue those from its clutches. And yet, what did Peter say? It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Dear friends, the the power of death cannot compete with the power of God. He is a mighty warrior. He can defeat armies. He can tear down impenetrable walls. Against God, death has no power. And yet this resurrection that Peter now proclaims It also speaks to the innocence of this Jesus of Nazareth, does it not? And that is because death, it only comes about because of mankind's sin, right? That was the curse. Because when when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God promise? On the day you eat of the apple, you will surely die. But when a man is sinless, death has no authority. And so this living Jesus, this resurrected man from Nazareth, this, this resurrection, it attests to both his sinless life and his divine strength. But the question is, is it true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, While the people could not deny that Jesus performed miracles, What was still in question were these claims of him rising from the dead. And so Peter lays forth his argument. And he begins by quoting the scriptures. Look at verses 25 through 31. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. The, The scripture that Peter quotes here comes to us from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And this psalm is a messianic psalm written by King David. But, but when David wrote this psalm, it, it was not himself whom he was writing about. No, but about the messianic king to come. The descendant that God had promised to him by the prophet Nathan. To see this prophecy, look at, look at 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 and 13. God said this to David When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. This one who would sit on this throne of this forever kingdom, would come from the lineage of King David. And this is what David had in mind when he he wrote this psalm that Peter now quotes. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. David knew that he was speaking prophetically when he wrote these words. That he was prophesying about Jesus. And that is a case that Peter is now making. That the resurrection of this Jesus of Nazareth had been prophesied in the Holy Scriptures. Now these Jews knew all too well the realities of decay. For, for it was their custom when they would bury their dead to come back to the grave months later in order to put the bones of their loved ones in these oss- ossuary boxes. And so this idea of decaying bodies was all too real for them. And this is why Peter made the argument that he did. That, that they could today go to the tomb of David, open it up, open up that ossuary box and find the bones of their former king. And yet the tomb of this Jesus of Nazareth is empty. And this was prophesied by David himself a thousand years prior. Are you following the logic of Peter's argument? One, David cannot be the person whom this psalm was written about because if we wanted to today, we could dig up his bones. Two. The, this promise of physical life after death that God made in the psalm, it is connected with God's oath to David, this, this oath that one of his descendants would sit on an eternal throne. And three, this, this promise finds its fulfillment in the resurrection of the Messiah. In other words, Scripture itself gives testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. This prophecy has been fulfilled. And it's been fulfilled by this Jesus of Nazareth. But it's not just the scriptures that Peter appeals to. Look at verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. We are all witnesses of it. A a man rising from the dead is not something that a person just makes up, let alone hundreds of people. In fact, by, by all accounts, these disciples, these witnesses, they were not expecting a resurrection at all. If you read the Gospels, you'll understand that. And when they were confronted with the truth, even they had a hard time believing it. But look, look at Luke again, look at chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. Here Jesus reveals himself to them. It says this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And so you see, even when Jesus was standing right in front of his disciples, these men, they had a hard time believing. They thought that he was a spirit, that he was a ghost. And they they, they needed Jesus to prove to them that, that he had a physical body. Touch my hands and my feet. Look, I'm eating this broiled fish. And yet they all became witnesses. And we, we know from earlier in the chapter of Acts that there were at least 120 right there. Right in Jerusalem who could attest that Jesus is alive. And this is important today as well. For it is through these witnesses that we have real, tangible evidence of the resurrection. That this wasn't some fabricated myth, but a real event in history. Let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus is currently alive? Do you believe this? That, that, that Jesus' bones are not lying in some forgotten tomb, but that right now, even as we speak, Jesus has a physical body. And, and that if he appeared to you today... You'd be able to touch his hands and his feet. Do you believe this? He does live inside of us. But he also has a physical form. He is still both God and man. And do you understand what that means for you? You see, what what Peter was saying to this crowd is is that he, along with all the other disciples, had witnessed this resurrected Jesus, and they had done so on numerous occasions. And so he must be the Messiah about which David had prophesied. This Jesus of Nazareth is alive and well, and because he is alive and well, this has implications on every person's life. Let's see what those implications are. Look at, look at verses 33 through 36. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, <clears throat> The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Peter's talking about the outpouring of God's spirit here. And it it is this outpouring of God's spirit that also testifies to the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. But not just risen, but he has ascended. For this Jesus of Nazareth has done what David could never do, which is to rule from a heavenly throne. He is now sitting at the right hand of his father, And he has received from his Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he now gifts to his people. And so the scriptures have declared it, the eyewitnesses have declared it, and now the Holy Spirit is also declaring it, that Jesus is alive and well. And more than that, that he is now reigning as both Lord and Messiah. Do you guys see it? The facts are overwhelming, and they are all pointing to a risen and ruling Savior. And the only way that a person can truly deny it is if they are purposefully shutting their eyes to the truth. Now what did Peter mean when he said that God had made him both Lord and Messiah? Does this mean that before Jesus rose and ascended that he wasn't Lord and Messiah? Absolutely not. For Jesus has always been our Lord and Messiah. Peter was simply describing the positioning of Jesus at that moment, that he was now upon his throne, and it is from there that he rules. Because he ascended, he has now made public the position of his authority, that he is both Lord and Messiah. But what does that mean? What, what, what do these words communicate, Lord and Messiah? Did, did you notice as, that Peter, as he was making this assertion, that he quoted another messianic psalm written by King David? Psalm 110, where we see God giving assurance to this messianic king that all of his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet? In other words, God would make sure that this future king that David was writing about would win all of his battles. But the interesting thing about this psalm is is the way in which David addresses this future king. What does he call him? My Lord. Now, Now in the English, we have the word Lord twice. It says, the Lord said to my Lord. But in the Hebrew, these are two different words. The the first Lord is Yahweh, while the second Lord is the word Adonai. And so our more literal translation would be this, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Now in, in the Old Testament, both of these words are regularly used to describe God. And so when David addresses this future king as his Adonai, he is claiming that this messianic figure is greater than he, that he is divine in nature. And this is what Peter is claiming as well. He calls Jesus Lord, that Jesus is not just a man from Nazareth, rather, he is more. He is Yahweh incarnate, God in human flesh. He is. Lord. But Jesus is also Messiah. This means that he is that promised king who who came to restore the kingdom of Israel and to bring salvation to his people. And so, what Peter is declaring is that that Jesus is both God in human flesh and that he is your king. For he is now sitting upon his throne and taking dominion over all of the earth. And that is what Peter meant when he said that God had made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And this is still true today. This Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Messiah. And no matter who you are and no matter what you have done, ultimately you're going to have to answer to him How did the people react to such shocking news? Once they understood the severity of their situation, what did they do? Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles Brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? The, the the gravity of what they had done was now upon them, and they were cut to the heart. I mean, think about what they just heard. This Jesus, this one whom you crucified is now alive, but not only is he alive, but he is the Lord Almighty, and he has ascended to his throne where he is now ruling. How will he judge you? What type of gaze from this heavenly king will he give to you knowing that that you rejected him and, and that you nailed him to a cross? How would you be feeling right now if you had been one of those in Jerusalem who shouted crucify? There is a reason the people were cut to the heart because they were guilty. And they knew they were guilty. And there was nothing that they could do to remove that guilt. And let's be honest, that's the way it is for all of us. Because of our sin, we are all to blame. All to blame for the crucifixion of our Lord and Messiah. And we are powerless to remove that guilt. And so we should be asking that same question. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter has an answer. Look at verses 38 and 39. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. By God's grace, he has provided a means for us to be saved. How good is our God? He didn't have to rescue us, but he chose to do so. Now to this crowd who was cut to the heart, Peter gives gives them two imperatives. They were to repent, and they were to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about these two things for a moment. First, what does it mean to repent? The the, the Greek word is metanaeo, and it means to change one's mind or to change one's purpose. And in the context of our passage, the These people, they needed to walk away from their rebellious attitude towards God and to walk towards Jesus. Peter was calling these people to to turn away from their sin and from their unbelief and to turn towards their Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were now to see this Jesus of Nazareth as both Lord and Messiah. And for those who do repent, Peter expected them to then to go to one of the pools within the city in order to be baptized. And this baptism would then signify the the cleansing of their sins along with their entrance into the family of God. But this was not just any baptism, but a baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And what is interesting about this is, is that when a baptism would typically occur... Never before has any name been invoked other than Yahweh. But now the name of Jesus would be invoked. You see, what what Peter was calling these people to was to publicly declare their allegiance to Jesus. To publicly acknowledge that he is their God and that he is their king. But that wasn't all that Peter had said. For there are also two promises that God would give to the person who takes that step of faith. The promise of forgiveness and the promised reception of the Holy Spirit. Let's consider forgiveness first. What what does it mean to be truly forgiven? What would it be like to have that guilt removed? What type of weight gets lifted when you know that God's face is no longer frowning but is now smiling down upon you. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, can God really forgive me? Pastor, you you don't know what I've done. You don't know the life that I lived or the pain that I've caused. You don't know how many times that, that I have been the one to have pounded in those nails. Think of it this way many of the people who were hearing peter's voice that day were a part of the same crowd that was shouting crucify crucify they were part of the mob that had murdered the son of god and yet even they could receive forgiveness and if the blood of jesus can cover over their sins and it can cover over yours as well there is no sin that is greater than god's mercy And the blood of Jesus has the power to wash you clean. But it's more than just forgiveness. For God also promises to send his Holy Spirit. He promises to dwell within his people. In fact, it is the Holy Spirit who causes us to repent in the first place. He is the one who cleanses us from within. And he is our deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, how good is that? It's great. Praise God. God not only rescues us from our sins, but then he resides within us, making sure that we will be his people forever. Dear friends, this same calling remains today this calling to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you recognize your sinful state? Do you recognize your need for repentance? Are you cut to the heart that you need to turn away from your sinful life and turn towards Jesus? Are you trusting him for your salvation? In other words, are you a believer? If not, then I urge you to repent. Because unless you do, then then the guilt of Christ's blood remains upon you. But if you are a Christian, if if you have turned away from your sinful life, and you have turned towards Jesus, then let me ask you this. Have you been baptized? Are you willing to declare your allegiance publicly? If you haven't, then, then what are you waiting for? No, baptism doesn't save you, but it is a vital step in your Christian walk. Well, Luke ends this passage by describing the outcome of this outpouring of the Spirit. Look at the the last two verses. Look at verses 40 and 41. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. Peter desired the salvation of his Jewish brothers, and that was why he earnestly pleaded that they would repent, that they would turn away from a generation that crucifies their Messiah and then turn in faith to the very one whom they had killed, this Jesus of Nazareth, who is now both Lord and Messiah. This one who has risen from the dead and now sits upon his heavenly throne, offering grace and mercy to all who call upon his name. And it was on that day that God added to his kingdom about 3,000 souls. And just as Peter continued to plea with his audience, so to now, I will give to you another warning. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now as a broken, broken people. A people who have been cut to the heart and are in need of forgiveness. Too often it has been our sin that has nailed your Son to that cross. We need your forgiveness. We need your Holy Spirit. Help us to repent and to trust in your Son, this Jesus of Nazareth, this one who died for our sins and then rose from the dead, this one who has now ascended to his throne and who has taken dominion over all of his creation. This one whom we crucified, and yet he is our Lord and our Messiah. We look now to him and to him alone for the forgiveness that we need. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.